it is December 22nd that I'm recording this, uh, and today is a good day. I just finished all of my classes. Uh, last week, I finished up um, with grad school for the semester. This week, I finished with my high school classes for the semester. I administered about 103 final tests, graded final papers, and turned in final papers and reading, and so... Uh, it is time to enjoy Christmas. Um, I was not uh, recording an episode last week uh, because I was busy writing papers and trying to get stuff done. And so the blogs and podcasts have been a little scarce over the last few weeks, especially the blogs. But um, that is the reason why, just trying to get grad school finished and finish well. And um, so I just, uh, I've been enjoying my time learning a lot and learning a lot of stuff to share with uh, you all who uh, are listening. And so I really appreciate that. Well, today um, I want to discuss two things. Uh, The main thing that I want to talk about is um, interpreting scripture well. And I want to kind of work through a little step-by-step process uh, to help you understand how to interpret scripture well, and I will be applying it to Revelation 3, which uh, if you don't know uh, that section, Revelation 3, 12 to 22, um, there's a couple verses in that section that are frequently taken out of context. And so I want to go over uh, correct uh, biblical interpretation and hermeneutics and apply it to that verse. But before I get to that, I want to bring up Uh, conversation that I had today. Now, I normally don't respond on Twitter uh, to skeptics or to trolls or whatever you want to call them. Uh, But every now and then, someone says something that I can respond to with a simple question. And normally when there's a short just kind of question that I can ask back to, to see where they're coming from, then I will do it. Um, I don't think Twitter is the place to get into a debate uh, because you can't provide evidence. You can't, you get 140 characters. There's no way that you can defend the existence of God or provide good, you know, evidence for the resurrection or anything like that in 140 characters. You could link to blogs, um, but it's just not the best format or the best platform to kind of have those discussions. But so when I do get in these kind of discussions on Twitter, it, it's normally me just asking some questions. But the question I asked today, I think, is, is maybe a little bit unique. And that's why I want to share it with you. And I think it is a tactic that we can take uh, when responding to the problem of evil. Now, I do want to be careful and, and just say, like I always do here at the beginning, if someone is asking you about the problem of evil, about why God would allow bad things to happen. Uh, We need to be very careful. The majority of the time, I would say, this comes from a place of hurt where something bad has happened and they are trying to understand. And so to go into the intellectual response of why God allows evil is not going to help the situation. We need to ask questions and understand where they're coming from. And so one way uh, that we've talked about before on the show, and, and it's something that um, Sean McDowell brought up and when I interviewed him, was he said when someone asks him about the problem of evil, he responds, 
of all the questions that you could ask God, why that one? And the reason is, is if they respond and say, well, there's been a tragedy or something happened to my friend or that they're going through something difficult themselves, we need to give a pastoral response in that situation and not go through the intellectual uh, response. But if they just want the intellectual, well, I just don't understand how a good God could exist and allow these things. Well, okay, well, now let's go into some reasons of why God might allow it. But I also want to say is when someone comes at you with the challenge of why God is allowing these bad things to happen, it's not always our responsibility to defend it. Uh, They're making a claim that God would not or should not allow these things to happen. And I like to ask questions to kind of flush out where they're coming from and why they think that way and that what they should what they think should happen instead. And so that's what I asked today. And so um, I, I posted an article written by someone else uh, on Twitter. I was sharing it uh, about the topic of why does God allow bad things to happen? And this person responded and said, you know, because possibly God doesn't exist. And here was their argument. Would a loving parent let anything horrible happen to their children? And then following that, they wrote no with exclamation points. Now I want to stop there for a second. Would a loving parent let anything horrible happen to their children? Well, I think there's a couple ways to look at this. And hopefully maybe you're thinking of something yourself. First of all, can earthly parents stop all horrible things from happening to their children? And I think the answer to that would be no. Uh, the only way that you can stop bad things from happening to your children would be to never have children for anything bad to happen to. But then you have to ask the question, well, is it better to not have kids or to have them knowing that something bad will happen to them one day? And, you know, most parents, I'm not one, but most parents, you know, recognize that, you know, having a child means that there's one day something bad could happen. Now you train them and you try and protect them and you try to do these things because I think a simple answer to the question, would a loving parent let anything horrible happen to their children? Well, not necessarily on purpose. I don't know any parent that wants to have horrible things happen to their children, but having children, you know that something bad is going to happen and you do your best to protect them. Um, You could try to you know, lock them in a room so they never face reality. But then you could say, well, being locked in your room forever, that is the horrible thing in and of itself. And so to to have children, but then expect nothing bad to happen to them is unrealistic. And so when someone says something like this to me, what I want to know is how would a loving parent keep horrible things from happening to their children? This person is claiming that a loving parent would not allow anything bad to happen to their children. And so I want to know, okay, if a loving parent would not allow anything bad to happen to their children, how would they go about doing that? What steps should be taken or can be taken so that nothing bad happens to the children? Well, this person wrote back, you know, isn't God supposed to be omnipotent? He's all powerful he should be able to prevent these things, you know, yet they still happen. And so I responded again. I said, well, that's why I asked you, how would you like him to stop all evil? What, how would that work? And then I got the response 
The question should not be put to a mere mortal. We should ask God who is omnipotent. And so I think now this is interesting that they're presenting that it is possible and that loving children would not allow their parents, their, their loving parent would not allow bad things to happen to their children, that God is supposed to be omnipotent. He's supposed to prevent these things. But when presented with how could he prevent these things from happening, the answer is, oh, how am I supposed to know? You can't ask a mortal person that. We don't have that kind of knowledge. And so it's interesting, and that's what I finally pointed out. I said, it seemed like you're suggesting that it's possible, yet you're also kind of saying that you have no idea how it's possible. You know, is it, you know, and so I, I think that there's slightly a contradiction there uh, of not, of expecting it and saying, oh yeah, God should just stop it. Okay, how should he do that? Because in order to stop evil, uh, he could take away our free will and we could become robots. Um, he could also make us kind of live in like a cartoon world where, you know, the, the gun works uh, for to shoot at a target. But as soon as you point at a person, all of a sudden, click, 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 nothing happens. But these are not real worlds. Uh, these are worlds where we are being manipulated. And then I think there would be even more issues of people being upset that God is manipulating us and controlling us and not allowing us to live freely and act out in the way that we desire. And so I think either way, uh, God is going to get the blame. But uh, I think that this might be a way, or this is a way, uh, to respond to someone who kind of brings this objection. And it, it, it's one way that I responded. And and um, I also asked the person, you know, why would you ask this one question, kind of what we just talked about? And, and I never got a response to it. Um, and they stopped responding when I kind of said, how, how do we go about accomplishing this? And kind of pushed it. Um, and so I just want to share, I just want to share that with you guys to think maybe uh, this is something that you has been brought up to you and you don't know how to respond or you didn't know at that moment. And, and so here is one possible response for you guys. Alrighty. So moving along uh, to our topic of correct interpretation. Last week or two weeks ago now, I created a video on Facebook and the title of that video is, Are You Understanding God Correctly? And in this short video, I talked about correct biblical interpretation. And, and here is the reason why I think hermeneutics, which is the art of biblical interpretation, is important. And here's what I say to my students, and here's what I said in the video is, If God exists, and if the Bible really is the Word of God, then that means that the creator of the universe is speaking to the people of this earth, that he is revealing himself to us, or that he has revealed himself to us. Now, I believe that that is the, what is happening, that God, the creator of everything, is revealing himself or revealed himself through Scripture. And so my question is, is... If the God of the universe is trying or has spoken to us, don't you think that we should make sure we're understanding him correctly? You know, how many times have you taken a text message or conversation out of context? You, maybe you walk up, you walk into someone's conversation, and you only catch the end, and it makes you just think something absolutely crazy, right? And it's like, wow, I just jumped in the wrong place in that conversation. I just got everything way out of context. 
Yet when we just jump into the middle of a story in the Bible, we don't understand, oh, context is important. Maybe I should figure out what the first part of this story was. Because we, we understand it when it happens to us in real life, but we don't get it when we look at Scripture. That each verse doesn't stand alone, that, the, that what we are reading, the majority of Scripture, a lot of it is historical narrative. And it's a story that is taking place that we need to understand the beginning of the story and understand uh, the middle or whatever part that is that we're jumping into. We also have times, you know, when, when someone says something and you respond incorrectly and they say, no, 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 you're misunderstanding me. You're taking me out of context. And we, and we keep trying to explain ourselves because we don't like it when someone takes our words out of context. When someone misunderstands what we're saying, we don't like it. Why? Because we, when we speak, we have a message that we are trying to convey. There's a reason that we're talking. We're trying to tell someone something. And when someone does not understand what we're saying correctly, it can upset us or at least make us want to change the way we're saying it so that they can understand us correctly. And so, again, I find it interesting that when it comes to our spoken language, we want to make sure people are understanding us correctly and not taking us out of context Yet for some reason, when it is God that is speaking to us, we're fine with taking it out of context. You know, as long as this verse helps me helps make me feel better, well, then it doesn't matter if it doesn't really mean that. And I hear that a lot. Well, maybe that's not really what God was saying, but it, it makes me feel better. And I want to say, or I want to express, I think that that is very selfish. That is very selfish when you could when you don't care or at least you don't put enough effort into trying to understand the other person correctly. You just take whatever they say and make it mean whatever you want so that you feel better. That is that is selfish. That's self-centered. And so I just want to encourage you not to do that, that we should, as believers, make it our desire to try our best to understand God correctly so that we do not misunderstand him and that we can interpret scripture correctly. And so now let's, I want to work through uh, a couple principles after I just kind of express why I think that this is so important that we understand how to do this well, uh, that we do this. And, and I kind of show you how to do it uh, with a verse here in the last 15 minutes that we have. So the first thing that I've talked about is context. Context is so important. In fact, most Biblical problems, most issues in Scripture can be solved by just reading a verse in context, by looking at the few verses before or a few verses after, understanding. And so when it comes to Scripture, it is starting from the outside, starting from the highest point possible. And what we learn in in class is what's called the bird's eye view, starting from a very high point of view and then coming down. And that's how we best understand what the scriptures mean. And so if we're looking at, for example, Revelation, we should understand from the big, greater context, from the Bible to the New Testament, to the book of Revelation, to the sections, to the chapter, to the verses, so that we can understand what the words mean within their context. And so the first thing that we do is we look for genre. Because obviously you're going to interpret um, a historical narrative differently than an epistle or um, apocalyptic literature or 
uh, a proverb or something like that. And when I talked about the in the Proverbs 22 podcast, we saw that a proverb is not a promise. It's a proverb. It's a wise saying. It's a, it's a general truth. And this helps us better understand what the Proverbs are saying. And so when we look at the book of Revelation, uh, it is apocalyptic. Um, and it is partially uh, talking about the present time as well as looking at the future. And we see this, and I'm, I'm going to be looking at Revelation 3, but again, in context, we go back. Revelation 1.19 is kind of setting this up, Revelation 1. And in chapter 1, verse 19, it says, uh, starting at verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. So Jesus here is speaking to John. And then Jesus says in verse 19, Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. And so here John is writing things that he have happened in the past, things that are currently happening in the present, and things that will happen in the future. And in Revelation chapter 4 is where the future things start to kind of take place. And so when we look at Revelation 3, this is a present um, circumstance. This is something that is happening at that time as John writes to these churches. And so the verse that we're looking at is uh, in chapter 3, verses 12 to 22, uh, where Jesus is speaking through John uh, to the church in Laodicea. Starting in verse 14, it says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So stopping there for a second at that verse, the first thing we recognize is that this is written to the church in Laodicea. And so again, to understand this properly, we have to understand, okay, what is the church in Laodicea? What was happening at this time? What was the city like? What was the church like? What can we know about these people that would cause Jesus to want to give them this message? And so the four things that we look at when we do interpretation is we look at grammar. How is the grammar set up within a verse? Can the grammar give us any hints of what's happening? We look at literary relationships on how there's repetition and different literary styles. We look at historical what was happening in history? Does it make any reference to the Old Testament? Um, and then we also look at cultural. And historical is also kind of geographical and that sort of thing. And then cultural. What are some of the cultural things happening at that time? And so when you kind of pair all those together, you get uh, a good idea. And so the first thing we have to do is we see that this is written to the church in Laodicea. And so we have to ask the question, well, what, what was Laodicea like? And if you look in a Bible dictionary, you learn that Laodicea was a very wealthy town. In fact, uh, quite, you know, back in this time, there was a huge uh, earthquake that destroyed many of the cities and the government had to help these cities rebuild and Laodicea was self-sustaining. They did not need to receive funding from the government and they were able to rebuild the the city themselves. They did not need any outside help. And that's going to kind of come into play uh, when we look at this verse a little bit more. Um, They were selling black wool. Um, They had gold. And this is also a city with aqueducts. And this is probably one thing that you have heard is that the aqueducts 
um, came from two different locations. One uh, was a location that had hot water, and the other one uh, had location um, of cold water. And so they had aqueducts bringing in this water, and we're going to get there in a second. But to kind of set the scene, we recognize this is a very wealthy town uh, that is self-supporting, self-sustaining, and is not really in need of anybody's help because they have a lot of trade. And so Jesus gives them this message and he says, I know your work starting in 15. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, most of the time when I hear that verse, it is spoken in a way that says something of the sort of, look, um, you know, a hot Christian is someone who's on fire for Jesus, someone who's really passionate and wants to serve Jesus. The cold one is, you know, you're just cold towards the person. You could care less. You're very negative. Um, and, you know, and Jesus would desire that we are either hot or cold, but not lukewarm, kind of this lukewarm Christian that could kind of care less, but not really, but goes to church and kind of goes through the motions. And this is the thing that discusses Jesus. And it's kind of given in a way that, hey, we need to be on fire for Jesus. We need to be hot Christians. Well, it's interesting that here it would say, I would rather have you be hot or cold. And I have to ask the question of why would Jesus want us to be cold? You know, I want you to be cold. I want you to reject me. I want you to do these things. That doesn't sound like Jesus. But what we recognize is when we look at this, where do we get this idea that hot is good and cold is bad? Does it say that in this verse? And the answer is no. We take our current idea of being cold in a relationship, maybe, as being a bad game. Uh, Or when you're cold at sports, you're not very good. You know, uh, hot we see as better. But if you look, and so we kind of put our idea of hot being good, cold being bad, into this verse when the verse doesn't even say it. Instead, ask you the question of, is hot water, because it's talking about water, right? Um, you're lukewarm, neither be, neither hot or cold. Um, is hot water uh, hot a good thing? Is it useful? Absolutely. For showers, for cooking, for those sort of things. What about cold? Is cold water good? Yeah, cold water quenches your thirst. I remember when I played uh, college baseball after every game, we would take cold baths or we would put ice on our shoulder, frozen water, and cold water was very useful. And so what we see here is what Jesus is actually saying is that he wants them to be either hot or cold. He wants them to have a purpose, to be purposeful, because lukewarm water doesn't serve a purpose. It doesn't really feel good to bathe in. It doesn't cook your food. It also doesn't quench your thirst as well on a hot day as cold water. It doesn't help with aches or pains or swelling or anything like that. It doesn't have a purpose. And so Jesus here is not talking about the state of a Christian, but instead is talking about water that is purposeful. Because here this town had a problem of not getting water that could be used for a purpose. Because they had the hot water far away, they had the cold water that came in in aqueducts, 
and their water was lukewarm. And so Jesus here is talking about this idea of being purposeful. Now, again, we see this as he as we kind of go on through the verse in verse 17. For I say, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. You realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, here it is that we see again this idea that this was a very wealthy town that did not need the help of other people. They say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. They were completely self-sustaining, in need of no one. They could do things themselves. But Jesus is reminding them that in what they see as riches, that they are poor. Wow. That even with their trade, their money, they were poor, blind, and naked. And we see this, that the Laodiceans because of their focus on physical riches, because of their wealth and their fact that they were confident in their ability to be self-sustaining, they had drifted away from their purpose. They had become like lukewarm water without a purpose. They had lost the purpose in life. They became spiritually bankrupt. Because when you don't need anything, when you're completely self-sustaining, then you also feel like you don't need Jesus. And when you don't need him, you're not living for him. And then the ultimate purpose in life is gone. And we see this as we continue in the verse in the last few minutes that we have. And so Jesus responds in verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, that true riches are found in Jesus and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to put and anoint your eyes so that you may see. And then verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline to be zealous and repent. Now, I think it's interesting in, in the short time that we have here to point out that he says, those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. In Hebrews 12, 5 and 6, it talks about, it says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And here I think that Jesus is speaking to the Christians of Laodicea because God disciplines those that he loves. And normally, uh, punishment, which is different than discipline, is reserved for those that are not Christians. And we see that in Romans 1. And so, as we finish up, he says uh, another verse that's kind of taken out of context. Verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And we take this as... Oh, if you open the door to your heart, that Jesus will come into you and he, he will accept you and you will be saved. But again, there's nothing here that says, I'm at the door of your heart knocking. That is, again, our understanding, our culture being put into this verse. But here he says, I stand at the door. Well, what has doors? Buildings. Churches have doors. And also, here's where the grammatical comes in. When it says, I will come into him and eat with him. If you look closely into is not one word into like going inside of something but it is into separated or jesus saying i will come towards him and eat with him and so i think that when we look at this scripture using the cultural historical grammatical grammatical and literary that we see that this is a group of people this is a church that is being spoken to 
that has become so focused on their earthly, physical riches that they have lost their purpose, that they have excluded Jesus from the church. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm standing at the outside of your church knocking. Let me into your church. Let me back into this place so that you can live with a purpose. And so we need to be careful of how we view this. Now, to finish, how can this apply now that we understand context? Well, I think one thing we can ask is, is there anything in our lives that is keeping us from realizing our purpose? Is there something that is keeping Jesus on the outside that we have become purposeless? Not necessarily cold Christians. That's not what this is saying, but purposeless. People who are not living for the ultimate purpose with Christ at the center. This is what the verse is saying, and this is what we as believers need to think about today as we read this and focus on letting Jesus back in to the center of our church to give us a purpose for our lives so that we can be useful like hot water is useful and cold water is useful. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I just want to let you guys know that this is the last one for the year. I'm going to be taking a break over Christmas and will not be producing any new content uh, until January. So I just want to thank you all for a wonderful, wonderful year. It has been for all of you that have been listening. It has been so encouraging for me. And I can't express how thankful I am uh, to have you as listeners and the readers of the podcast or the blog and everything. Thank you for making this a wonderful year for Coffee House Questions. This is Ryan Pauly. God bless and Merry Christmas.